morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be up here this morning. Uh, I think I know most of you, but um, if you're new, new or visiting, welcome. Um, my name is Nick Russell. I'm a member of this uh, church and this congregation. I'm also the chaplain over at Christchurch Grammar School. Uh, but Kieran's away on holidays. Uh, he's our local minister and uh, enjoying the sun and warmth in Broome. And uh, so he's asked me to, uh, to preach and uh, lead communion for us this morning. Let me pray. Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that through this story that you've given us, that we would love him more and know him more. Amen. Well, Kieran told me that I could preach on whatever I wanted this morning. Uh, I think it's always a risk telling a preacher they have permission to effectively ride their hobby horse into the sunset. Uh, Hopefully I won't do that for you this morning, but... I did think, you know, what will I really enjoy preaching on? And if there's any type of writing in the Bible that I love preaching on, it's it's narrative, it's it's the Bible stories. And I particularly particularly love the storytelling in Mark's Gospel. And so I'm going to invite us today to try to enter into this story that occurs, occurs pretty early on in Mark's Gospel, but is, I think, impressively powerful. I've been preaching on this, and I teach it regularly at school, for probably about 15 years of focused on preaching on this story, and I've never grown tired of it. I thoroughly enjoyed my preparation this week, found new insights. It's a, it's a really wonderful story. And, and what happens is the story is, begins when Jesus is confronted by this huge crowd. And in this huge crowd, we discover is this man who, who's waiting for Jesus. And as soon as he spots Jesus, he runs up to Jesus. And he throws, Jesus, throws himself down at Jesus' feet and begins begging. Now, the surprise of all this is that this man is not the kind to do this this sort of thing. I'm willing to say that he would never have done this kind of thing in his life before. Never have got down in the dust and begged someone for anything. This man's name was Jairus, and his name translates as something like God enlightens. And he is someone, by all accounts, that that God has shone his light on. Jairus is very blessed in his life. He's someone who's at the top of society's hierarchy. And this ancient society was much more stratified than ours is. He was a synagogue leader. He was male. He was socially respected. He was wealthy. He would have been seen as morally upstanding, as a holy man. And his life would have been one of admiration and even envy by others. And yet he's in the dust, on his knees at Jesus' feet, begging Why? Why is he repeating the same words over and over? Why is he doing only what the most desperate do? Because he is most desperate. His little girl is sick. And she's not just sick. She's at the point of death. Jairus would likely, in in the weeks leading up for this, however long this illness was, have, have explored the ancient medical solutions and they didn't work but now he's heard of this healer that's in town and he's got nothing to lose except his dignity. His daughter's worth more than his dignity. So he's in his feet. He's at, so he's at Jesus' feet begging. Rabbi, my daughter's nearly dead. Please put your hands on her so she can live. Jesus, my daughter's dying. Please, please come heal her. Teacher, please, please come. Your kids are in trouble. Parents would do anything wasn't it some um, heartbreaking news we saw this week, that family in Carnarvon who seems to have had their four-year-old abducted while camping. The story is heartbreaking for all of us. 
Um, but I, I'm a parent of a four-year-old myself, and we're a family that loves to go camping up north. You know, this, this story particularly hit home for me. I, I can't imagine what those parents are going through. And I hope you've been praying all week. I've been praying all week for a good outcome of this. But her parents would be desperate. And, and whether they're people of faith or not, I, I'm willing to, to, uh, to bet that they've been begging God to do something. Anything. That's Jairus in this story. He's about to lose his daughter any moment now, and he is so desperate. He's in the dust, begging Jesus to come, to do something, to do anything. God, his prayers, and Jesus immediately starts to go with him. But the problem is it's slow moving. The crowd is enormous, and people are pressing against Jesus, and they're blocking his path. They're restricting his movement. But the situation is desperate. Jairus' daughter is breathing her last breaths. Any moment now, it's going to be too late. And then the story takes this frustrating turn. It stops and introduces another character. Now? I mean, as readers, this is not the moment we want to hear about another character. Where we're just as desperate as Jairus to see his daughter heal. We don't have time for this. But the story does it anyway. And, and, and this time, the character is a woman. We've been told that she has been suffering hemorrhages for 12 years. Hemorrhages is probably a little bit broad, a little bit too general in its um, description. It seems likely that this woman had had her period persistently for 12 years, every day for 12 years. Now, there are several conditions that could cause this kind of thing, nearly all of which are treatable today. But just imagine what that kind of persistent blood loss would do for you, would do for your health. I mean, she, she likely would have had some kind of chronic pain she would have been terribly weak, pale, constantly fatigued, had low immunity. It gets worse, though. Imagine what it would have done for her socially. With fairly rudimentary means of managing, managing her blood loss, her life would have likely been confined to her home. The condition probably developed shortly at, at or shortly after puberty. Uh, she would have been prevented from being married, from having children, being a wife and a mother, these are states that almost every woman in this ancient society longed for. And it was, a shame, it was a thing of shame to not be one of those. But perhaps the worst was that she was religiously, ceremonially unclean. A bodily emissions from both men and women created this state of ritual unclean- uncleanness. Now I'm going to read to you a, a little paragraph from the book of Leviticus, just so you get a sense of this. So this describes the woman's condition and what she would have to face. It says this, If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during that time will be unclean, just as during her normal menstrual period. If any of you touch these things, you will be ceremonially unclean. You must wash your clothes and bathe bathe yourselves in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. If you think that's bad, it gets worse. This was a society where the religious leaders created these extra rules on top of the ones that were already there, like the one one I just read. Uh, Extra restrictions that meant you didn't even get close to breaking the stated ones. So it's almost certain that 
you would not touch this woman. You would not want to go near her for the risk of touching her. You likely wouldn't want to speak to her, and even her family, if she had family, would be restricted in the kind of contact they had with her. Now, before we go on, just, just note something interesting here. that We talk about personal sin quite a bit, and it is important to, to think about that, but both Jairus and this unnamed woman face a different kind of problem. It's not their personal sin so much as it is the effects of sin on the world in which they live. Jairus didn't do anything for his daughter to get sick, but she was. This unnamed woman didn't suffer because she was particularly sinful, but she suffered anyway. The world they had lived in had had broken them. Their lives had gone in directions they never intended or hoped for, and they suffered badly because of it. And this woman's life in particular was a total mess, and none of it was her fault. But everyone thought it was all her fault actually. Jesus taught us um, elsewhere in the Gospels that sickness and suffering are not a result of personal sin. He's quite clear about that, but that teaching of Jesus was really countercultural. Sickness was generally thought of at this time as a direct punishment from God for disobeying him. And the cure was that you obey the cultic laws better, the religious ceremonial laws better. If you do that, God will heal you. If you don't, God won't. I'm sure this woman had been through a heck of a lot of grief going through that. The guilt of wondering what she'd done. The guilt of, guilt of trying harder and harder to be good, to do right, and nothing changed. And then I imagine in her desperation she would have turned to the street healers. You know, we're told she spent all the money she had on them. Street healers whose healing at this time sort of shaded in, imperceptibly into magic. Or maybe she bought protective amulets and paid for defensive spells against demons or enemies that might have caused this. She was broke. She was bankrupt. She was sick. She was lonely. She was dirty. She was guilty. Life was in pieces. And notice she's the complete opposite of Jairus. Jairus is named. She has no name. Jairus is a man. She's a woman. Jairus is rich. She's poor. Jairus is respected and loved. She's despised. Jairus is surrounded by people who want his fellowship. She's dreadfully alone. But both are desperate for God's help. And so this woman gets up and does what was incredibly brave. She pushes her way through a thick crowd. She was not only touched people and made them unclean as she, as she went until she arrives at Jesus and we readers are supposed to think, oh no, she doesn't even have the nerve to touch Jesus to make him unclean too, does she? And she does, she, she touches the edge of his cloak in hope, in, in bold confidence that if she does, her life will be restored. And it is. Immediately the bleeding stops. She feels it, she knows it straight away, the pain's gone, she knows she's been healed and, and so Jesus stops and we as readers get even more frustrated because we haven't forgotten about Jairus's daughter and how close to death she is. Jesus, we think, if you give this woman any attention, Jairus's water, daughter is going to die and it's going to be too late. But Jesus stops. He didn't have to stop. He could have just kept going. You know, knowing what had happened, he could have just kept going. He could have prioritised the holy man, the upstanding citizen, the one worthy of respect. 
But he stops for the unnamed. Who touched me, he says. And the disciples think he's mad. You know, it's like jumping into an ocean and saying, what made me wet? You know, there's a crowd all around you, Jesus. Everyone touched you. But one person in that crowd knew what he meant, knew what he was asking. And she comes forward and she's terrified. And we're told that she tells him the whole truth. It's described like a child who's spun a web of lies and finally admits it. That's how she feels in this moment. She stole power from him. She stole her healing. She's indeed a sinner. But Jesus gives her none of that kind of judgment. He gives her nothing but acceptance. Daughter, he says. Daughter. To the woman who had no name, he names her here. Daughter. To the woman who is alone, she now has a family. To the woman who was walking death and, and filth to her people, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Music is built on the interplay between tension and, and resolution. And this story, I think, is like a piece of music. It, it built up the tension for us. And, and in the healing of this woman, it's landed for just a split second on a resolving chord or note, but really only for a semi-quaver. Because while Jesus is in mid-conversation with this woman, he's interrupted. A messenger arrives to Jairus and says, Master, your daughter's dead. It's too late. There's nothing the teacher can do anymore. And this is where we as readers sort of throw our hands up in the air and go, Right, I told you so. We could see it, Jesus, this whole time. You stopped for the unnamed person and in the process lost the daughter of one who was actually worthy of your healing. You've messed it up and now she's dead and it's all too late. Why did you stop, Jesus? Why did you bother talking to that woman? But Jesus speaks to Jairus and he says, Don't be afraid, just believe. And he goes again, he starts to move again, and shortly he arrives at the house and there's, there's people there, neighbours and friends and family, and they're wailing and, and weeping. And, and Jesus bizarrely asks them, Why are you crying? And he says, The girl's not dead, but asleep. And they laugh. Now, how can they laugh a moment after wailing with tears? But they do. They, they laugh in mockery. They laugh in scorn at Jesus. Because the statement is so ridiculous. I mean, ancient people, as well as modern, know the difference between death and sleep. The girl was dead by all accounts. They didn't understand that Jesus' statement wasn't literal. It was a prophecy. Well, he goes into her, and there the girl is. And she's white and motionless on her bed. And he lifts up her hand. What? I mean, this is a dead body. You don't touch a dead body because it makes you religiously, ceremonially, unclean. And Jesus does it anyway. Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. She stands up. She walks around lunch. Now this is not just the healer we have on our hands. This is one who clean, whose cleanness overpowers the unclean. That is unheard of. One whose life overcomes death is impossible. This is one for whom there is no such thing as too late. 
You have seen by now that the two characters in this story, Jairus and the woman named Daughter, are meant to be read together and alongside each other. And so we, we can ask the question, what is it that those characters in the story have in common? Because they're both opposites, as I've already described, but they're both desperate for God's help. And they both suffer with religious uncleanness. Jairus through the dead body of his daughter, the woman named Daughter from her own walking dead body. They are complete opposites, but they both need the same thing, the touch of Jesus in their lives. The touch that banishes uncleanness, the touch that heals, the touch that rebuilds, the touch that even resurrects. And one character receives her healing immediately on meeting Jesus. The other begs for immediacy in the dust, but has to wait, to wait even through the pain of death and loss to see the glory of resurrection. But whether they wait or experience it immediately, both characters know the powerful love of God in their lives to do the absolutely impossible. And notice another thing. Notice that that Jesus requires of these characters nothing at all. His love is without condition. And just, just look at the commands of Jesus in this story. I'm going to read them for you. I've listed them here. He says, Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Do not fear. Only believe. Little girl, get up. There's no go offer some sacrifices, say some more prayers, give money away, volunteer more, go on the church rosters, read your Bible, evangelize your friends. Jesus' love is without condition. Be healed. Rise from the dead. Only believe. And if you think that because you've been a Christian for a while, you're ready to move on to something deeper and more sophisticated than this story of grace, then you're wrong. We, We start in grace and we finish in grace and live in grace. We start with the gift of love and we never leave it. The guiding statements of our whole lives are go in peace, be healed of your disease, do not fear, only believe, and little girl, There's a uh, a well-known philosopher today called Alastair McIntyre who once wrote these words. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And so as we draw toward the end of this reflection today, I want to ask you where you find yourself in this story. Because you were there. Maybe you identify with Jairus or with the woman named Daughter. Maybe you identify with both for different reasons. Or maybe you see yourself in the thick crowd watching the love of God touch others around you, learning that this love is for everyone, for the Jairuses of the world and for the unnamed and for everyone in the middle. Maybe you see yourself as one of the disciples here thinking you know Jesus but then having your expectations blown apart and up into the stratosphere. Whoever you are, you are in this story somewhere because the story encompasses all of humanity in its breadth and its power. So I want to leave you with these questions. What what is God saying to you this morning in this story? Where is the Holy Spirit placing you into this narrative? I'm going to give us a few moments of quiet reflection on that and then I'll say a closing prayer.
God of healing and hope, we thank you for your power in the lives of Jairus and the woman that you named daughter. Thank you even more that your love extends to us. We know we are in a crowd, sometimes overwhelming, so give us power to reach out to you or to cast ourselves at your feet in the dust so that we would see your power in our lives in your timing. Fill us with faith and hope and the power of your love to share with those around us. Jesus.